Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Fewer people are convinced by the story each day as they begin to see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. The time for allowing them to make us feel like strangers in our own country is over. We are Americans. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, January 25th, 2022, the 370th day of dystopia. And I want to kick things off with a supercut from Grabian. These are the people telling you that Russia is trying to invade Ukraine and we need to save Ukraine. These are the people telling you that it's racist if you object to two and a half million illegal immigrants coming into the country. These are the people who tell you that inflation is transitory and that masks work and that two masks work and that lockdowns were what the science said and that the vaccine is very safe and effective and that Joe Biden got 81 million real legal American votes. American democracy. I think we're one election away from the end of American democracy. If they take over in 2022, 
That is the end of democracy, and we're going to have authoritarianism. I hope that we can flip this and save democracy. If we can't, I got to, you know, I got to believe that fascism will take over in America, and that will be the death of democracy. The potential death of democracy. The death of democracy. The death of democracy. The death of democracy as we know it. This protest now is not simply about the death of George Floyd. It's about the death of American democracy, decency, and humanity. I'm sad to say that it also can lead to the, uh, the diminishment of democracy if not its death. It almost feels like we are witnessing the, the death of democracy here. The death of democracy line stood out to me, Jonathan, because I think that's just factually correct. Kind of the end of democracy, at least the end of our democracy. The return of Donald Trump to the White House could spell the end of democracy in America. We could have a Trump presidency, and that would, in my opinion, be the end of democracy in this country. I think that could be the end of our democracy, not to be too you know, pointed about it. Hillary Clinton said a couple of weeks ago that if he runs and wins, that could be the end of our democracy. Do you share that fear? I do. Are you going to stand by and watch this man destroy the democracy? I hope he will be beaten or else it's the end of uh, democracy as we know. And it just goes on and on and on. There's honestly another minute to that. But as absurd as all of that fear-mongering about the death of democracy is there's actually a truth underlying that and that's that these people are deathly afraid that their system is crashing down around them because they know what more of trump and more of maga and more of this populist movement in america will bring to them it's the end of their credibility For most of them, it's the end of their career. For many of them, it's the end of their freedom because they have actually committed crimes against America and they will be held accountable for them. But we don't have a democracy here. We have a constitutional republic. And the point of that constitutional republic was never to make certain that people from other countries could vote in our elections from the comfort of their couch or that we would create a system where one party could extend their influence globally using our military, the work of our people, the wealth that our country creates to keep them in power forever here. American citizens over 18 years of age who have not committed certain felonies have the right to vote. No one else has the right to vote in American elections. And if they are voting, then no, we don't need to count those votes. Recognizing that does not spell the death of democracy and neither do all of the other things they freak out about. Today, the liberal media is having a meltdown that Tucker Carlson made the point last night, very succinctly and correctly, that neither Russia nor Ukraine are actually our allies, and that the theory that Ukraine might someday join NATO, which Joe Biden thinks is 15 years from now, does not make them, by virtue of that possibility, our ally. That we have a responsibility to put American blood and treasure into preserving their borders, especially when we're not preserving our own. 
And of course, CNN goes and says, well, he's making an argument that we should defend Russia over Ukraine. Well, no, he was making the argument that we shouldn't be defending any of them. We don't have any business there unless, of course, the business is Uranium One and you're talking about Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and Joe Biden and the rest of the global communists. Unless you're talking about people who actually want to put weaponry closer to Russia. And so they are happy to use Ukraine as a proxy battle so that they can spark a war with Russia. There are people like that who believe they have their interests best fulfilled by taking military action in Ukraine. But it doesn't help any of us. And Tucker's been saying that for weeks. He's obviously right. And the argument that I think it was Brianna Keeler on CNN, she was like, oh, well, okay. Oh, you don't know whether we should defend Ukraine or Russia? Well, that's an easy one. One's a democracy and one's an autocracy. And everybody knows she's right, right? I mean, she can't explain it and none of her viewers can explain it. But they've all been told that Ukraine is a democracy and Russia is an autocracy. Therefore, whatever we say about Ukraine, even if we can't back it up, it's still true. And they always use the everybody knows tactic. Right now, they are so incompetent at this dog wagging exercise that they are using the everybody knows argument for why we should start a war in a country that's not our ally against an adversarial nuclear power that also isn't trying to start a war. And I will definitely be talking to Kash Patel about Russia and Ukraine this afternoon. Here is more of the media breakdown, but this is on the funny side, the good side, not like the hair on fire freak out that Chris Hayes had on his show last night. He had a couple of young millennial communist bloggers on to talk about how the anti-mandate rally on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on Sunday was basically a conspiracy theorist convention that played host to all of the weirdest people on the internet. That is, by the way, yes, they're lying, fine. But some of them actually believe that all of these people who were experts in their field and clinicians seeing patients for their entire lives up until COVID, everything was good. Great reputations, very well-respected leaders in their fields. Once COVID hit, they all became conspiracy theorists, as did everyone else who didn't give the Fauci, WHO, CDC, global communist narrative. But they were freaking out about one particular part, and that was that multiple speakers had mentioned that Fauci should be put on trial and that the media members who have helped to spread the actual big lie should be put on trial in a Nuremberg 2.0. They don't like any talk of that. They think that is violence. They think that is radicalism. No, that is the people coming together to say, 
We actually have laws. We require data. We require evidence. If you are going to test the limits of those laws, you better damn well be ready to tell us why and then prove why it's best for us. And in the absence of that, if instead you move to coercion and force and taking people out of their jobs and destroying people's lives and reputations for stuff you can't back up with science at all, well, then we're going to use the laws to fix this problem that you have created. And if those laws lead us to the fact that you have committed grave crimes against humanity, Well, then, my friends, the law says you should be tried for crimes against humanity and punished appropriately. And if it turns out, let's say that you used that crime against humanity as the backdrop for another crime against humanity on behalf of a foreign nation who was looking to take over the United States of America by inserting a false and illegitimate and incompetent criminal as the president in a time of great conflict, perhaps even war. The Chinese did release the virus from the lab. It was man-made. They didn't tell the rest of the world. They shut down air travel from Wuhan to the rest of China, but not to the rest of the world. Now, that sounds like an act of war. And you know who called it an act of war? Well, that's Donald Trump. And so if you helped a foreign nation perpetuate that narrative in order to steal an election and place Joe Biden, the most one of the most pathetic men to ever serve in public office into the position of fake president, well, There are laws that surround your treason, too. And yeah, everybody knows what the punishments are. But going through the legal system and arriving at that end is not violence. And it's not the threat of violence. It is a plea for justice to be upheld. And it's that simple. Now, here's an article from the New York Post from two days ago. This is Sunday. The man in charge at the White House isn't Joe Biden. This is the editorial board of one of the country's largest newspapers. That's the headline. Who really is in charge at the White House? It sure doesn't look to be President Biden. The latest evidence came last week when Chief of Staff Ron Klain delivered a behind-the-scenes message to Democratic allies and staff just hours after Biden's disastrous news conference. The president had failed to mention that his next Build Back Better bill would fund child and elder care, but Klain insisted it would. As Axios reported, Klain's private comments are yet another indication the White House has a core set of priorities it plans to fight for. Thanks, Axios. And the post goes on, even if the president doesn't know about it fully yet. Klain's real message? Don't worry, we staff will make sure Biden does what we say. Yet some in Congress want the actual president to take charge. Politico reports that moderate Democrats complain that Klain is, quote, overly deferential to their liberal colleagues, end quote, and want him out. It quotes one House member. The president was elected because we all thought he was going to be good at governing. He was going to govern from the center. He was going to work with Republicans and to have a chief of staff that apparently has decided that he's going to be Bernie Sanders. I think that's confusing. It's just not helpful. Okay, one House Democrat. 
You thought Joe Biden was going to be good at governing? Why? Why would you have thought that? Is that just what you told yourself to turn a blind eye to the theft of an American election? Sounds like that's what they're really concerned about. At the Wednesday presser, Biden said he wanted to broaden the advice he's getting and lean more on outside advisors. You know, remember? Editorial writers, college professors, other experts. They were going to come in and tell Joe Biden how to fix his sinking presidency. And the post finishes, how about actually taking charge? If he's able, that is. And of course, he's not able. And the country is waking up to that. And now they're having articles like this from mainstream news outlets. The Post isn't the common mainstream news outlet. They are far edgier than the rest of the mainstream. I don't trust everything they say, not by a long shot, but they're certainly better and more reliable than the Washington Post and the LA Times and the New York Times. Now, a very interesting bit of news popped up yesterday. And upon seeing the headline, I immediately was like, oh, well, this sounds like Myanmar. So I'm talking about the military coup that was announced yesterday in Burkina Faso, the African nation. And I want to go through this a little bit. And I think that you will see that, yes, this sounds exactly like Myanmar. And it sounds like it might just be the location of another color revolution. You might even hear hints of this sounding in some way like America in 2020. This is from the BBC. Burkina Faso military says it has seized power. The military in Burkina Faso says it has seized power and overthrown President Roach Kabor. If I am not pronouncing that correctly, I apologize, Mr. Kabor. You are an illegitimate president, so I don't apologize that much. The announcement was made on state television by an army officer who cited the deteriorating security situation for the military takeover. Mr. Kabor had faced growing discontent over his failure to stem an Islamist insurgency. Keep that in mind. His whereabouts are unclear, but the officer said that all those detained were in a secure location. The coup comes a day after troops seized barracks and gunshots were heard in the capital. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. I'm just kidding. I'll try. I think it's Ouagadougou. Earlier, the ruling People's Movement for Progress Party said that both Mr. Kabor and a government minister had survived an assassination attempt on Sunday, mutinying troops demanded the sacking of military chiefs and more resources to fight militants linked to the Islamic State group and Al-Qaeda. The army statement said Mr. Kabor had failed to unite the nation and to deal effectively with the security crisis, which, quote, threatens the very foundations of our nation, end quote. The statement was issued in the name of a group not heard of previously, the Patriotic Movement for Safeguard and Restoration, or MPSR, its French acronym. Although read out by another officer, the statement was signed by Lieutenant Colonel Paul-Henri Sandigo Damiba, 
who is believed to be the coup leader and a senior commander with years of experience fighting the Islamist militants. The statement said the parliament and the government had been dissolved and the constitution suspended, but promised a, quote, return to constitutional order within, quote, a reasonable time. The military also announced the closure of Burkina Faso's borders. UN chief Antonio Guterres condemned the group and called on the military to, quote, ensure the protection and the physical integrity of Mr. Kabor. Well, why isn't he calling on them to end the coup? The African Union and regional bloc ECOWAS have also condemned the forceful takeover of power, with ECOWAS saying it holds the soldiers responsible for the deposed president's well-being. I wonder if the military there cares. Probably not. Earlier, the news of his detention was received with cheers and celebrations in Ouagadougou, reports the BBC's senior Africa correspondent Anne Soy. Earlier footage from the capital appeared to show armored vehicles reportedly used by the presidency peppered with bullet holes and abandoned on the street. Very scary. Mobile Internet services have been disrupted, though fixed line Internet and domestic Wi-Fi are working. So takeaways. The president was removed. The reason this article gives for his removal is that he was not dealing successfully with immigrants who were associated, they say, with the Islamic State and Al Qaeda. So the military staged a coup to depose him and they closed the country's borders. The UN chief, the United Nations, the League of Nations, our best friend, the UN, maybe they'll send a humanitarian mission. All those soldiers and guns who just get accused of sexual atrocities all over the world. Maybe they can go in and save Burkina Faso. What a favor that will be to this small African nation. But the UN doesn't like this coup. Okay, so there's a lot of little red flags going up throughout this article, right? And I think to myself, huh, you know, this is being described a lot like the situation in Myanmar is being described. And I would like to learn some more about what's happening in Burkina Faso. So I started searching around and I found this beautiful article from the worldwide propaganda rag Reuters. And this is from November 27th, 2020. Burkina Faso opposition leader concedes defeat in election. Burkina Faso's main opposition leader has conceded defeat in Sunday's presidential election after initial results showed a comfortable victory for President Roche Kabor, ending a dispute in which opponents said election fraud was committed. Former finance minister... Zephyrin Diabre met Kabor on Friday night to congratulate him, Kabor said in a post on Twitter. A spokesman for Diabre confirmed the concession. It leaves Kabor free to tackle major challenges facing the landlocked West African country, including fighting Islamist groups that have killed more than 2,000 people in attacks this year in 2020 and made large areas of the North and East ungovernable. Now, do you know who was president? In 2020, before this election, well, if you guessed President Roach Kabor, you would be correct. So the problem with the immigrant Islamist terrorists 
coming in was overseen by President Kabor. And he allowed 2,000 of his people to be killed in attacks by these Islamists that year in the lead up to his reelection. And it made large parts of the North and East ungovernable. Keep that in mind. Kabor won 57.87% of the vote. The official tally from the Electoral Commission showed on Thursday. He needed over 50% to avoid a second round. Opposition leaders had accused the Kabor camp of massive fraud before and after the vote. However, they produced no conclusive evidence of this. And the Electoral Commission dismissed the claims. And of course they would dismiss them. I mean, Kabor was so popular. He got 57.87% of the vote. With a margin like that, who would even doubt it? There could be a little fraud here or there, but certainly not enough to make up a difference like that. I mean, <laughs> right? <laughs> that makes total sense. I mean, I don't know the numbers and I don't know the state of things and <laughs> I don't know how election fraud works. So I do know that there's no way that any election anywhere in the world ever could ever have that much fraud. Like, <laughs> Not enough to get a Democrat candidate who seems to have absolutely no ability for the job and didn't even campaign for it. 81 million real legal American votes defeating a president who had had a largely successful first four years, even though everybody hated him and was against him and still achieved 12 million more votes than he got the first time he was elected. Man, <laughs> that sort of fraud. They can't accomplish that. And hey, the election was already over, so it's just too late to contest it. Maybe if you had said something before and warned that parts of this election might seem fraudulent and might be fraudulent, well, then maybe people would take you more seriously. But, you know, now it's over and we got almost 58% of the vote. And 58% of the vote is the kind of number where it just couldn't have been fraud. You just you just lost. I'm sorry. You got to concede. And the thing is, we're not going to let you look at any of it. And, you know, we got some help. There's not going to be any way you're going to overturn it. So sorry, but it is what it is. You're just going to have to accept it. But wait, what is this? This is an article from six days prior in the same outlet Reuters from November 21st, 2020. Here's the headline. Burkina opposition candidate alleges massive fraud ahead of Sunday vote. Burkina Faso opposition candidate Zephyrin Diabre said President Roche Kabor is orchestrating a massive fraud to secure reelection in Sunday's presidential vote and that he will not accept results marred by irregularities. Diabre, a 61-year-old former finance minister, is one of the main challengers in a field of 12 who are seeking to unseat Kabor in Burkina Faso's second democratic election since a 2014 revolution. And guess what year President Kabor became president? Oh, 2015. So it was the first democratic election. You got that? Democratic. Our democracy. It's amazing that the first time our democracy was put in place Kabor won. And then the whole Islamist immigrant thing came in. And maybe that'll mean something down the line. Diabre told a news conference on Saturday that ruling party agents are paying women in markets to hand over voting cards so that someone else can vote for them. 
He waved aloft a video on his mobile phone purportedly showing this occurring, but did not provide further evidence of wrongdoing. That's not enough evidence, you see. It's funny because James O'Keefe exposed virtually the exact same thing. He exposed that Somali immigrants in Ilhan Omar's district had a ballot harvesting scheme where they would pay to get ballots so that they could fill them in and then cast them into Minnesota's election. Very safe, very secure. People called James O'Keefe of Project Veritas a conspiracy theorist. They said the whole thing was not proven. In fact, that is the case right now that James O'Keefe is battling the New York Times over in court. Because you know what? It just was true. That was election fraud committed right in front of the American public in the lead up to the election. And we knew about it. And then after the election, we pretended no. There's no way fraud could have changed the outcome of this election, not with the most popular president of all time. It's just not enough evidence. Oh, but he did the same thing in another video, more or less, with a very similar scheme down in Texas. And that woman is being prosecuted, too. But don't worry, you shouldn't be upset at your rulers, because back then... They knew it was just a conspiracy theory. It only became real later. Diabre said his party will file a complaint with the state prosecutor and ask the Electoral Commission to end the practice. The massive nature of the phenomenon may undermine the serenity and integrity of the results of the November 22nd elections, Diabre said. The president of Cabor's MPP party, Simone Campore, called the allegations false. Ha! <laughs> And you got to believe him. That's like basically a very strong statement on the level of saying that these were the most safe and secure elections that America has ever had. Electoral Commission representatives did not immediately respond to requests for comment. The head of a mission by the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, as I mentioned in the last article, which arrived to meet opposition members as Diabre's conference was ending, said that he had seen no evidence of fraud. We have been blessed to witness a very calm and gentlemanly campaign. We have no worries of fraud, the former prime minister of Guinea, Cabine Komara, told Reuters. Analysts expect a tight race between Kabor Diabre and another candidate, Eddie Comboigo with the possibility of a second round election if no candidate wins more than 50% of the vote on Sunday. Isn't that great that they got that third party candidate in there? Made it a little easier for them to get over that 50% hump. And then they could say, well, hey, you know what? I know you guys all really like Diabre, but the truth is these guys kind of just split that half of the vote. And so, you know, it's Kabor. But here's a real kicker. At least 400,000 people or nearly 7% of the Burkina Faso electorate will not be able to vote due to an Islamist insurgency linked to Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State that has forced a million people to flee. By order of the Electoral Commission, polling stations will not open in hundreds of villages hard hit by attacks in the north and east. 
What would it look like in America if 7% of our voting population was just told, I'm sorry, you know, we just can't do elections there. We, we have too many immigrants who are linked to terrorist groups and they're just terrorizing your villages. So you're not going to be able to vote. That would be like taking Florida or Texas off the map. All right. Florida is just a little under 7%. Texas, just a little over. So we have an election in Burkina Faso. The candidate who wins with 58% of the vote is the incumbent president who was placed there in the first democratic election. Now, during his time as president in his first term, they began to have an Islamic state and Al Qaeda linked invasion of immigrants into Burkina Faso. Nothing like what happened from the Middle East toward Europe in the first half of the last decade. And certainly nothing like what's happening at our southern border now and has been happening under Democrat administrations and globalist administrations for as long as we can remember. They shut down 7% of the population from voting. The opposition candidate had proof of fraud and noted that a massive fraud was about to be perpetuated across his country while people were being removed from their ability to vote. Why didn't they get mail-in ballots? (laughs) I mean, honestly, there's nothing else they could have done. Hey, sorry, guys, you're just not going to be able to vote. Yeah, I know it sucks, but hey, this is Burkina Faso and we do things a certain way here. So sorry, but that's not a big deal in Burkina Faso. The world media and the global communists are more than happy to support that president in Burkina Faso the whole way through. It doesn't matter if he says that 7% of his country can't vote. It doesn't matter if he ignores overwhelming evidence of fraud in his country. And of course, there is that evidence because we know exactly what this system is. It's the same system that was run in Myanmar, and the narrative is virtually the same as well. And there's another interesting piece to this puzzle. As I was looking yesterday, I came across some news from the art world. This is from artnet.com, November 15th, 2019. George Soros's foundation is launching a $15 million initiative to repatriate cultural objects to African nations. Last November, French President Emmanuel Macron commissioned a report recommending the repatriation of looted African cultural objects from France's public collections, spurring a national debate. But one year later, no objects have been returned to the areas from which they were taken. Gosh, that sounds like a crime. Now an organization is stepping in to facilitate the process. The Open Society Foundations, an international grant-making organization funded by billionaire George Soros, has launched a four-year, $15 million initiative to aid in the efforts. The legacy of colonial violence has deep implications for the ways that racism and imbalances of power are perpetuated today. Patrick Gaspard, the president of the organization, said in a statement, this isn't just about returning pieces of art, but about restoring the very essence of these cultures. Yes, that's what they need. Really old art. 
The Open Societies Initiative will support African lawyers, scholars, archivists, and grassroots organizations campaigning for the return of artifacts taken during the colonial era. It will also fund meetings between cultural leaders and work to promote partnerships between museums, governments, and other organizations. Perfect plan. And the article goes on. And obviously, I'm not opposed to artifacts going back to Africa. I mean, I don't care about that at all. If people want them back, great. Give them back if the other people don't want them. Not my thing. Why is George Soros giving a speech in Burkina Faso just before, a year before, an election like that? I'm surprised he didn't find it dangerous, what with all that Islamic terrorism going on there in the North and the East. And I just got to thinking, man, that's weird. What does a billionaire like George Soros want with this landlocked, small, seemingly, we're told, volatile African nation? Now, this is from philanthropynewsdigest.org, January 25th, 2018. Gates pledges $45 million for health initiatives in Burkina Faso. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has announced plans to invest more than $45 million over three years in support of ongoing efforts in Burkina Faso to improve nutrition and the health of women and children in the West African country. Announced by Gates Foundation co-chair Melinda Gates during a visit to the country's capital, Ouagadougou, the investment includes $34 million for government programs aimed at reducing childhood stunting by half by 2020. Another $10 million will support family planning programs aimed at helping women plan and space their pregnancies. Yeah, you wouldn't want those people having too many babies. Thanks, Bill. In addition, as part of a $15 million regional funding initiative that includes uh, Benin, Ivory Coast, Guinea, Mali, Mauritania, Niger, Senegal, and Togo, the foundation will match every dollar invested by the government of Burkina Faso in 2018 in the purchase of contraceptives. Investments by the foundation also will support higher quality and more timely data collection, enabling partners to measure progress on family planning and nutrition initiatives, design more effective programs and pinpoint areas of greatest need. Burkina Faso has made significant progress against poverty, hunger and poor health in the face of big challenges and is inspiring other countries in the region to do the same. This progress is no coincidence. It takes leadership, said Gates. There is enormous opportunity ahead. If countries like Burkina Faso continue to increase their investments in health and development, then unprecedented progress is possible, and every woman, man, and child in this country will benefit. Now, it is so, so great that billionaires like Bill Gates, who is committed to a depopulation agenda, and happy to talk about it, by the way, he calls it sustainability. He's committed to a depopulation agenda, yet out of the goodness of his heart, he puts $45 million into this seemingly random country's government coffers so that they can make sure people don't have too many babies. What a hero. And then we have billionaire George Soros, who literally helped spot his neighbors in Hungary so they could be loaded onto Nazi trains 
donating $15 million to that region to help reacquire ancient artifacts. And he went all the way to Burkina Faso to give his speech just one year before the election. Again, hero. And if you really want to have a research adventure, after this, start looking up the color revolution in Belarus and then look up other color revolutions that have been staged around the world and see if they might all connect somehow. Like, check out the Arab Spring, which was not actually a spontaneous uprising of citizens in the Middle East who could finally communicate with the new social media apps. Oh, the advent of social media is going to cause world peace. Just look how the Middle East has come together through the Arab Spring. I wonder if you could figure out that all of these things actually do have common links. And then after you look up some of those color revolutions, look at George Soros's history with color revolutions and with trying to cause uprisings in nations around the world. And then at some point, you might want to look and see if just maybe, just maybe, he has funded movements like Black Lives Matter in America, but he probably hasn't. I'm probably speculating. I gotta remember, I'm a conspiracy theorist and not those people that push the Russian collusion hoax. But speaking of Russia, boom segue, this is an article by the great Lee Smith. He's often at the uh, Epic Times. This time he is at tabletmag.com. This is from yesterday. What does Vladimir Putin have on Joe Biden? Vladimir Putin didn't need the green light that Joe Biden gave Russian forces during his marathon press conference last Thursday for a minor incursion into Ukraine. The Russian president already knew the U.S. commander in chief couldn't stop him even if he wanted to. Sure, Putin has seen the polling and knows foreign entanglements won't help a Democrat hemorrhaging support from his own party. But that doesn't seem to be all. You don't need a secret dossier authored by a British ex-spy for hire like Christopher Steele to understand the possible weird real world mirror version of Russiagate. This time, it's basically all out in the open, or at least it was until the press and social media scrubbed reports of Hunter Biden's laptop from the Internet in the run up to the 2020 election. The laptop, whose provenance and contents have both since checked out beyond any shadow of doubt give evidence of Hunter's financial relationships with foreign officials and businesses, like the more than $50,000 per month he got for sitting on the board of Burisma, a Ukrainian energy company starting in the spring of 2014. The reason that a company like Burisma was willing to pay the drug-addled son of the vice president of the United States so much money for a no-show job wasn't to buy his expertise in natural gas exploration and drilling of course, Hunter Biden's sordid memoir, Beautiful Things, published last year, makes it clear that during the period in question, he was a wreck of a human being who spent lavishly on crack and methamphetamine, which he consumed in expensive hotel rooms in the company of prostitutes. It would seem that the obvious point of paying Hunter Biden was to buy protection from the American official in charge of Ukraine policy, Joe Biden. Did it work? Well, according to the now president, yes, as Biden told a 2018 audience, he threatened to withhold a billion dollar loan guarantee to Ukraine unless the government in Kiev 
fired a prosecutor investigating the company that was paying his son a princely retainer to fuel his drug habit. At the time, Hunter Biden's laptop surfaced. U.S. media and spy services claimed it was Russian disinformation, a fake aimed at harming his father's election prospects. It wasn't, of course, as Hunter's subsequent memoir and former business associates have confirmed. The effort to cast aspersions on the origins of the laptop, censor reports about it, and or label reporting on its contents disinformation was itself a disinformation operation waged by American media and tech platforms in a real world example of election interference, as well as a massive in-kind contribution to Joe Biden's election campaign. But the Hunter Biden laptop and the cries of Russian disinformation that followed raise a timely question. Given the Biden's Ukraine-related activities, what additional information does Moscow have on the first family? Hunter Biden's problems with substance abuse, prostitutes, and money would have made the vice president's son an ideal target for foreign intelligence services. Worse, Joe Biden seems to have eagerly promoted his son's shakedown efforts, even boasting publicly about using his office to interfere in Ukraine's political and judicial systems in ways that directly benefited his son's employer. There is surely no shortage of oligarchs, Ukrainian and Russian, who are eager to share information about their dealings with the Bidens in order to gain influence with Putin and undo rival billionaires. One can assume that all of that information has made its way to Putin's table by now. The likelihood that Russia is sitting on a wealth of compromising Ukraine-related material on Joe Biden and his family may come as a shock to media that pushed the Trump-Russia collusion narrative for four years. But the Biden-Russia compromise story may be more than a political funhouse mirror. It may explain why the president's curious passivity towards Russia's Nord Stream 2 pipeline and why, almost as soon as Biden took office, Putin seized the opportunity to move more than 100,000 troops to Ukraine's border. What's more, it may also provide new insight into the Russiagate conspiracy theory that poisoned America's public sphere and made people lose their collective minds. Given the amount of genuinely compromising material tying Joe Biden and his son to shady dealings involving Ukraine and Russia, including a $3.5 million payment Hunter received from the widow of the former mayor of Moscow in 2014, it's worth asking if the 46th president of the United States was the initial target of the Hillary Clinton-funded Russia dossier. In fact, allegations about the Biden's activities in Ukraine, sourced in part, it seems, to the Clinton campaign, made their way into the New York Times in 2015, encouraging Biden to dispel second thoughts about reentering the 2016 race. Now, wouldn't that be something if they basically just took all the information about Joe and Hunter and changed all the details to make it about Trump? Genius. Also, lazy as shit. Also, completely incompetent. The sort of incompetence that can only be acted upon if you are so narcissistic that you think your grip on power cannot be shaken and you think that no one will ever question your honesty or integrity or the facts of your case. Unbelievable. The Steele dossier has been long since revealed as nothing but utter nonsense. But with the Bidens as a target rather than Trump, it's at least easier to make sense of its contents, especially the notorious P-tape. Trump is a well-known germaphobe. It was always hard to imagine him agreeing to be micturated, all right, good word, upon by hookers on a hotel bed in Moscow. Nor would Republican primary voters likely care about ladies of the night soiling a bed that Barack Obama once slept in.
Remember that part of the story? It was not only that Trump had disgraced himself, allowing Russian hookers to give him a golden shower, but it was that it was a bed that Barack Obama once slept in. So Trump was disgracing himself and the bed at the same time. Very juicy story. Very juicy dossier. But Democrats would like to think it's sacrilegious that anyone could ever pee on a bed that Barack Obama slept in. And I mean, he, he and Michelle don't do weird stuff. And by his own admission, Hunter Biden seems to have spent plenty of nights in hotel rooms with prostitutes. If it seems hard to imagine Donald Trump walking into a hotel in Moscow and asking for the Obama suite, a scenario in which Hunter Biden demanded such lodgings doesn't take much imagination at all. With Russian troops massed on Ukraine's borders, now is a good time to revisit Tablet's October 2020 report on the Biden-Ukraine scandals. And that is linked in the article if you want to check that out. Both for what it says about the Biden-Ukraine connection and for what it says about the systematic distortion and censorship of the public record by tech platforms and media verticals that have themselves become active agents of disinformation targeting the American public. And situations like the one we're enduring in Ukraine right now are the result of empowering the global communist agenda by placing a man who is fully compromised by Ukraine, China, and Russia, among countless other nations, into the office of fake president after a stolen election. This is exactly the sort of stuff you get. And here's more from Breitbart. This is today. Red-handed, $6 million Biden family deal was with Yi Jianming, who had ties to a spy-linked United Front group. A Chinese global energy company linked to a Chinese intelligence operation sent close to $6 million to Hunter Biden in 2017, according to the explosive new book, Red Handed, How American Elites Get Rich Helping China Win, by Peter Schweitzer. The firm, now defunct, was led by Yi Jianming, a wealthy and connected Chinese businessman who was chairman and majority owner of the global energy company CEFC China Energy. And we have heard about CEFC before. This stuff is on the laptop. This stuff will be big in Garrett Ziegler's upcoming report from his research firm, Marco Polo. And in that report, he will be breaking down all of the various crimes that the Biden family has committed as proven on Hunter Biden's laptop. Biden had developed a close working relationship with Yi, quote, on a number of fronts. Their relationship began around the end of 2015 when Joe Biden was still vice president. Associates of Yi and Biden, including the then Serbian foreign minister, brokered the connection between the two men, Biden and Yi. Hunter Biden would tell his then partner, Tony Bobolinsky, in the text messages dated October 14th, 2017, that he spoke with Yee on a regular basis and that they had a once a week call. Biden would also become Yee's personal counsel in the U.S., essentially an employee and representative for the Chinese global energy chairman in the U.S. In brief, Hunter Biden was now the U.S. representative for an intelligence and military linked Chinese company that was supporting voices for an aggressive military posture against the United States and its allies, Schweitzer writes.
Yi had a number of ties to Chinese military intelligence. CEFC was housed in a complex in Shanghai's French concession section, an area primarily controlled by China's military. One of Yi's early business partners was the granddaughter of one of the founders of China's military, Marshal Yi Zhanying. Yi had also built his business by acquiring assets from a former People's Liberation Army officer closely linked with Chinese military intelligence, Lai Changxing. Yi was also the deputy secretary general of either the China Association for International Friendly Contract or its Shanghai branch from 2003 to 2005. CAIFC is funded by Chinese PLA intelligence. In addition, there were Chinese military officers affiliated with Yi's company who also had ties to the PLA National Defense University. CEFC also funded a related nonprofit think tank called the China Energy Fund Committee, whose analysts would advocate for using military force in the South China Sea. Another CEFC subsidiary called for Taiwan's reunification with mainland China. And I wonder if we're going to begin hearing more about that as China tries to escalate militarily in a quest to take over Taiwan. And who will be there to stop them? Oh, Joe Biden. That's right. The guy who was already extraordinarily compromised by China. Thank goodness we had all those really high information voting Democrats come out and support exactly this. And this was all available at the time, by the way. Schweitzer writes, Yi was at the center of Beijing's economic strategy. His firm, CFC, saw itself as playing an important role and central role in advancing China's Belt and Road Initiative, which was designed to expand Chinese economic and political influence worldwide. Accordingly, CFC was also an oil supplier to the People's Liberation Army. Hunter Biden worked with Yi and his associates with the hopes of developing CFC into a global energy company with vast energy holdings in countries like Oman, Romania, Colombia, and Luxembourg. But CFC also had ambitions in the U.S., which provided the opportunity for the $6 million payment. Oh, got it. So Hunter wasn't some auteurist energy magnet. He was just the guy that could help the company linked to the Chinese Communist Party, the People's Liberation Army and Chinese intelligence gain influence in the United States. And how would he do that? Oh, yeah, through his dad. CFC had plans to invest in U.S. infrastructure and set up two entities to make that happen. Hudson West 4 and Sinohawk. Hunter Biden and his uncle, James Biden, were involved in running those efforts. Hunter Biden hired Tony Bobolinsky, an experienced financial manager. Bobolinsky also had very high-level security clearance in the United States. In 2017, Hunter made plans to house his business, one of his father's offices for the Biden Foundation, and CEFC together in an office space in Washington. For his new office mates, Hunter listed Joe Biden, Jill Biden, Jim Biden, Gong Wen Dong, Chairman Yi, CEFC emissary. That's in parentheses describing Gong Wen Dong. Hunter wrote in an email on September 21st, 2017. I would like the office sign to reflect the following. The Biden Foundation, Hudson West, 
CFC US. The lease will remain under my company's name, Rosemont Seneca. Dong not only had notable ties to those embedded in Chinese intelligence and foreign influence operations, according to Schweitzer, but he was also the chief financial officer at the Beijing-based Radiance Property Holdings, which was tied to the Chinese government's United Front foreign influence operations. The firm, now called Radiance Holdings, is controlled and run by Lam Ting Kyung, a businessman with deep connections to United Front groups linked to Chinese intelligence. Lam was also a member of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, a high-ranking Communist Party advisory body that is also a central component of the Chinese government's United Front efforts. Schweitzer writes, according to U.S. Federal Government Commission, United Front organizations often serve as covers for Chinese intelligence operations. Isn't that great? Hunter Biden helped the Chinese set up an intelligence operation in the U.S. What a swell guy. The money soon began to flow, Schweitzer writes. Over 2017, CEFC sent Hunter Biden close to $6 million. Furthermore, by July 2017, CEFC began making interest-free, forgivable loans to the Biden family. CEFC executive Zhao Running wrote that $5 million was intended as money lent to the BD family, not just Hunter Biden. This $5 million loan to the BD Biden family is interest-free, Zhao wrote. Schweitzer notes that interest-free loans provide tremendous leverage because the lender can demand its money back if it is displeased by any action. In August 2017, CEFC Infrastructure Investment, LLC, sent Hunter Biden's law firm, Owasco, $100,000. Four days later, the firm wired $5 million to another entity controlled by Yi, which then started sending regular payment to Owasco. Biden then transferred $1.4 million of that money to a firm called Lion Hall Group, which was controlled by his uncle, James Biden, and his wife, Sarah Biden. On September 8th, 2017, Hunter Biden and Dong applied for a line of credit, making James and Sarah authorized users for credit cards on the account. They then bought $100,000 in luxury items because, you know, you got to live it up when you're a Biden. That's what a life of public service gets you. When CFC infrastructure fund known as Hudson West later folded, a Chinese assistant to Hunter Biden wrote him, whatever money from Hudson West, please take them, take as much as possible or figure out a way to spend them for your own benefits. Just take it and keep as much as possible. You know, things people normally say about huge sums of money. And I was going to do some more foreign stuff with the Bidens. Maybe I'll save that for tomorrow because I don't want to skip this. And it's a little silly, but that doesn't mean it's going to stay a little silly. And that is why I am putting it on the radar. Okay. So you may or may not have heard about the hundred monkeys story in Pennsylvania. If you haven't, I'm going to go through this article from the daily mail today. Driver who stopped to help when truck carrying a hundred lab monkeys crashed in Pennsylvania and put her hand in one of the cages, says she now has a cough and pink eye after one of the macaques hissed in her face. Okay, that's a real headline in the Daily Mail. And this story has been kind of simmering for four or five days now, and it just keeps getting weirder. 
This is like the opening scene to a dystopian sci-fi horror movie. And I think, I don't know for sure, but my suspicion is all of this is 100% bullshit. And you might agree with me, you might not. But I'm going to go through this because I think after I get a little way through it, you'll be like, all right, I see what's going on here. A woman who stopped to help after a truck carrying 100 lab monkeys crashed in Pennsylvania fears she's caught an illness after one of the macaques hissed in her face, leaving her with pink eye symptoms. Michelle Fallon from Danville near Scranton, you know, Biden country. I'm not implying Biden has anything to do with this, please, was driving directly behind the vehicle when it crashed, throwing animal crates all over the highway and smashing some to pieces. Three of the macaques escaped and went on the run. <laughs> it's a monkey on the lamb. But all have since been captured and humanely euthanized. Okay. All of the other monkeys who'd arrived in the U.S. from Mauritius that morning and were en route to a lab have been accounted for. Fallon has now had a rabies shot and wrote about the symptoms she has since suffered on Facebook and also told PA homepage that she developed symptoms of pink eye an inflammation or infection of the eyeball normally caused by contact with feces. But the monkey did hiss at me and there were feces around and I did have an open cut. They just want to be precautious. And I'm going to go through a little bit more of this, but some of this is sourced from a local news outlet and I actually would rather just go from that. So Fallon said she got out to help both the driver and the animals in their cages, initially believing them to be cats. When she approached and put her hand on the cage, she says the monkey hissed at her. The day following the accident, Fallon suddenly developed a cough and pink eye, which became so bad that she had to visit the emergency room at Geisinger Medical Center in Danville. Okay, so now... I'm going to switch over to Harrisburg 100, hbg100.com. Witness at scene of CDC lab monkeys crash has developed symptoms. <laughs> Michelle Fallon is living a nightmare and she's ready to put that nightmare on record. The Danville woman is now experiencing symptoms believed to be related to her close encounter with wild monkeys when the trailer they were riding in collided with a dump truck and unloaded their cages all over Route 54 close to I-80 on Friday afternoon. The monkeys were destined for an unidentified Centers for Disease Control lab in the Midwest. The following day, Fallon developed a cough and something that resembled pink eye. And by Sunday, she was visiting the Geisinger Medical Center emergency room where infectious disease doctors were consulted. Fallon has since received her first of four preventative rabies shots, as well as a prescription for a 14-day course of valaciclovir. The stay-at-home mom, who shared that she was fully vaccinated and received her booster, was also tested for COVID, but the results at the ER were negative. Fallon is still processing the sequence of events that unfolded on Friday. She pulled over to check on the condition of the accident victims, but said they were more concerned about press coverage of the incident. Okay. Now, 
that sentence, first of all, this is not some very high profile website, right? But this is a piece of information that I haven't seen appear in other places, and they must have gotten it from somewhere. And it's possible that they talked to her. But this is still a very, very, very strange sentence. But she said they were more concerned about press coverage of the incident. Okay? So she pulled over to check on the victims of the accident, which happened to be two drivers and a passenger, it seems. But there was an accident. The trailer of this truck apparently got smashed into as the truck was turning and the door for the trailer is all banged up. The cages are scattered across the ground. Some of them opened up. Some of the monkeys got away. They captured three of them and euthanized them for some reason. And the last monkey, the hundredth monkey is on the lamb. And I guess just infecting people with whatever the CDC had in these monkeys to study them. Or maybe they were just au naturel and people are just worried. Maybe this is just a thing that monkeys have, right? The same way that bats have them in the wet market in Wuhan, for instance. But who was more concerned about press coverage of the incident? It certainly wasn't the driver of either car or either truck, I should say, right? I mean, they wouldn't be more concerned about press coverage. They would be like, oh, man, I just crashed my truck. Where did all the monkeys go? And I don't think that it's referring to by accident victims, the monkeys. So we are led to believe that this woman, Michelle Fallon, had arrived just after the incident. But also she said that they were more concerned about the press coverage. This is very, very strange. And I don't know what to make of it. Obviously, I can speculate and know what my thoughts are. I don't think it makes sense to share them. You're probably having the same thoughts. It sounds like she arrived after the scene was already filled with other people and that the people, the victims of the accident, the drivers, were probably dealing with the press. That is what it sounds like to me. The driver of the truck hauling the monkeys identified in a press release from PA State Police as Cody M. Brooks, 31, of Keystone Heights, Florida, even went so far as to put his hand in the camera of a local press enterprise reporter. He was very, very upset, said Fallon. He was in a panic. Brooks passenger Daniel G. Adkins of Flora Home, Florida, required transport to Geisinger Medical Center for an injury. So everybody goes to Geisinger. Many questions remain for Fallon, like what are these monkeys possibly infected with? Why wasn't the vehicle marked, indicating it was carrying potentially biohazardous contents? Why were the three monkeys that fled instantly euthanized and not captured? What did the CDC tell her doctor to test for? Nothing forewarned Fallon that she was putting her health at risk. It was only after her risky encounter, when a CDC representative who appeared on the scene advised her to watch for symptoms and to alert her primary care doctor. She also said the CDC and Pennsylvania Department of Health would be in touch. This has been a nightmare, she said. I had no idea doing a good deed like this could get me a rabies shot and put me in this situation. 
Fallon was simply showing compassion. She told the driver that he's in Danville. We take care of people. Now she's the one needing care. And again, this is a very, very strange situation if we are just to take this at face value. Okay. So this crash happens. We got a bunch of diseased CDC monkeys on the road, some in cages, some not. It seems by her description, if this article is correct, that there were already press on the scene, but she nonetheless thought she was doing a good deed by stopping, getting out to find if the accident victims were okay, and then approaching one of the cages of the monkey who then hissed at her, and now she has pink eye. So she stops at this scene to do her good deed after other people and potentially the press had arrived. She found out that they were monkeys. One of them hissed at her, and then she still waited around for who knows how long until a CDC rep arrived. Got it? Does any of this sound like normal human behavior whatsoever? I would say just, you know, my personal feeling. You don't have to agree with me, but I would say this sounds like complete and total horseshit. Fallon said there were other motorists who stopped at the scene. Oh, okay. So how many people were here and do they have symptoms? Do the drivers have symptoms? Does the press have symptoms? What was the CDC representative like when they arrived just immediately on the scene? Bang, got to get the CDC in there. They showed up almost as fast as the woman that was driving right behind them ish. Fallon could not identify those people who were the motorists stopped at the scene because normally when people are driving around, you can't necessarily identify them. They're just different people but suspected some might also have been put at risk. Oh, no. The email from the Pennsylvania Department of Health indicated that efforts would be made to track them down with the assistance of police. Those who believe they may have had contact with the monkeys are asked, per the CDC letter, to seek medical attention and contact the Pennsylvania Department of Health. The three monkeys who fled from the scene were euthanized. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA, has since issued a statement on this incident, indicating that the organization has filed a complaint with the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Director of Animal Welfare Operations, asking him to investigate the treatment of these monkeys. They report that the USDA has now confirmed that it's investigating. And by the way, it's good to see the pictures of the incident that they have posted online, because that trailer looks like it was owned by, like, just a very working class farmer. It doesn't look like that trailer is geared up in any way to be transporting like foreign animals for the CDC that may be infected with something. Again, this whole thing is madness. This story is far too crazy and unlikely to just accept on face value at all. And the Daily Mail has her Facebook post about the incident. And I'm going to try to read through this as best as I can. I'm sure she was just typing on a phone and made a bunch of typos or whatever. I'm going to do my best to piece this together because it's pretty rocky. You can see it in the Daily Mail article. 
what a day. I try to help out at an accident scene, was told there were cats in the crates. So I went over to pet them to find out it's monkeys. Then I noticed that there's three in each and I was and one was completely broken. The other was half broken. So I knew four got away. So come home, go to bed. My aunt runs into news crew, was asked to do interview, then find out not to get close to the monkey. Well, tried to pet one. I touched the crates and walk in poop, then was told to meet police at the scene to talk about exposure. News crew was there. I thought they were CDC. So I talked to them, end up doing interviews, talked to police and a lady with CDC. I will be getting a letter. I'm very low risk for I don't know what yet. But symptoms are COVID symptoms, like seriously, a day from hell. Now, again, that is a statement that is either just written so casually that the person is just spewing facts out into the post, but otherwise doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Like her aunt ran into a news crew somewhere and got interviewed about the incident just randomly. Did the aunt walk up to the news crew and say, hey, uh, I'm the woman's aunt? Probably not, right? Did the news crew just walk up to some random older lady and be like, hey, do you know Michelle Fallon? I mean, no, right? And Michelle Fallon herself talked to a news crew, but thought that they were the CDC when she approached them, like the cameras and the microphones didn't tip them off. What in the world is going on here? For real, what in the world is going on here? And she mentions that she walked in the poop. I think elsewhere, she mentioned she had like a cut on her hand or something. But she's got pink eye from a macaque either hissing in her face or that she walked directly into monkey poop and must have touched it and then later touched her eye, giving her pink eye. And we're just supposed to believe all this. And what is going to come of this story? What is the next step that we are going to get about the 100 CDC monkeys story? This thing is crazy. And right now, I I mean, I'm going to try to figure out what in the world We were doing shipping monkeys in from Mauritius. I think that's how you pronounce the place's name. What is going on there? And if they try to tie this, by the way, to the hybrid COVID Ebola Marburg thing that they are now talking about in China, that will be a perfect signal that all of this is 100% horseshit just like it looked from the beginning. If you want to think I'm crazy, think I'm crazy. Not going to hurt me. I cannot be crazy next to people who spent the last two years thinking that masks protected them and that lockdowns weren't a devastating moral, political, and scientific failure. That's how it goes, okay? If you are a Biden voter and you're going to tell someone else that they're crazy, 
Get a mirror, pal. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lie to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting, or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. Backing as moderator for tonight's broadcast. It's high noon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just $95, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. 
warbyparker.com slash covered. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!